Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. And my name is Mark Leonard. I'm director of ECFR. In a break from our normal format, I'm reporting today from the annual conference of the British Labour Party in Brighton, the long anticipated gathering of the members of the largest British opposition party, many of whom have newly joined this year. In Brighton, I spoke to three very interesting players in the heart of the Labour Party's foreign policy establishment about what they made of Jeremy Corbyn, the newly elected, highly controversial party leader. Only a few weeks ago, no one outside the British political elite had even heard of Jeremy Corbyn. But within the space of a few weeks, he's become an international figure, up there with Donald Trump and Alexis Tsipras as a face of the new populist politics that is dominating the world. He was elected leader of the Labour Party on the 12th of September 2015 with almost 60% of the vote and is already turning British politics upside down. Unusually for a modern politician, rather than making his name on economic issues or taxes or home affairs, Jeremy Corbyn's passion is for foreign policy. He is known to be fiercely anti-NATO, he has at times been extremely critical of British EU membership and he opposes the British nuclear deterrent. At the same time, a lot was made during the campaign of the relationships that he's built with controversial political movements such as Hamas and the IRA. To be sure, Jeremy Corbyn isn't yet Prime Minister and his chances of getting that job are still unknown. But the leader of the opposition can have an important influence on British foreign policy. Some have argued that it was the Labour Party which created the space for David Cameron to shift his position on accepting refugees from Syria. And in the last parliament, it was Ed Miliband and his opposition to the idea of bombing Syria, which stopped David Cameron from pursuing that policy and also had an impact on Barack Obama's decision making. Last night, I went to the international reception at the Labour Party conference, which is a private gathering where ambassadors and other foreign policy experts come to hear what the Labour Party is going to do in the international realm. This is what Jeremy Corbyn said there. This party is very committed to the idea of social Europe, the idea of defending rights of people, environment, workers' rights, all those issues all across Europe. But we're a party that also wants people to reach out and understand what it is to migrate, what it is to be a refugee, and to recognise the enormous contribution all those people make when they reach their new point of destination and then develop their links in that new society. And so we as a party reach out to everyone. The issues we're facing our peace, our war, our justice, our human rights, our environment. But our party is big, strong, very, very healthy, very determined to campaign and very determined that uh, come 2020 we'll be the government of this country. Thank you very much. So that is what Jeremy Corbyn said. But what does it mean in practice? When it comes to foreign policy at the moment, there are three big issues which have been dividing many of the participants in the Labour Party conference. People are trying to work out what the Labour Party will do in its relationship with Europe, on the refugee crisis and its response to the war in Syria, and perhaps most contentiously, what its stance will be on the renewal of the Trident nuclear weapon. 
Just after Corbyn's main speech, I caught up with Pat McFadden to discuss the first point, British membership of the European Union. So I'm joined by Pat McFadden, who is the Labour Party's Europe uh, spokesperson. And uh, we just walked out of Jeremy Corbyn's big uh, leadership speech. And there was lots on foreign policy in that. Um, Pat, the whole question of Europe and foreign policy has been a a massive uh, topic of discussion here in Brighton and uh, is even more central to to the debates than it usually is. Where do you think the Labour Party comes out on Europe at the end of this week and what do you think it means for the referendum campaign that's coming up? Well, since Jeremy Corbyn got elected a few weeks ago, I think there's been uncertainty in some policy areas. He said he wants to open up debates on various things, but on Europe, uh, we have very good clarity. We will clearly campaign as a party to remain in the EU uh, in the forthcoming referendum. That was endorsed very clearly by the conference this week. Um, That's a position that the front bench is very much signed up to. There will be individual uh, Labour people that take a different view, but the centre of gravity and the front bench position Uh, are clearly in favour of remaining in and I think that's really important because this is going to be a hugely significant decision that the United Kingdom takes uh, in the next year or two. It will chart our future, it will say a huge amount about how we view ourselves and how we view the rest of the world and even though we're in opposition, even though we lost the election in a heavy defeat a few months ago, Uh, I believe that we have a responsibility to exercise leadership in this debate and so whatever is happening on other areas of policy I'm pleased that on uh, the question of membership of the European Union we come away from Brighton with a very clear position of fighting to remain inside the European Union. It's no secret that Jeremy Corbyn himself but also some of the people around his campaign were involved in uh, Eurosceptic activities the last time there was a referendum and uh, are not massively enthusiastic about it but it is interesting how how much the position has shifted and the official party positions come out in this way how much of that do you think has got to do with the views on Europe of the new members because they seem to be more pro-European uh, than, than maybe even some of the, the old members in the party well um, the membership of the Labour Party has changed a lot even in recent months, and, uh, you know, we've had what is it, 160,000 new members or something. Um, so anyone who says with certainty what the views of all those people is, it's, it's a quite a fluid situation. Um, but what evidence we have suggests that most people, either old members if you like or new members, uh, are in favour of staying in. You're right that Jeremy Corbyn himself and some of his supporters have traditionally come from a more sceptical background. But, you know, the last time we had a referendum was 40 years ago. It's a long time, and the United Kingdom's relationship with the EU 40 years after that is completely transformed. I mean, Hillary Benn himself, I believe, voted against membership. That's a shadow foreign secretary voted against membership back in 75, and he's one of the most ardent pro-Europeans in the party. So. I, you know, I don't read too much into uh, what people may have thought in their youth, uh, you know, 
four decades on, um, and uh, I think the arguments changed a lot in that time, partly because, and this has been one of the features, uh, the social protections to Europe offers. This has been quite an important feature of the debate here at the Labour Conference this week. The workers' rights that are guaranteed by the EU, and I think people on the centre-left and the left see Europe as a source of <laughs> social protection, particularly when we have a Conservative government that shows itself to be unsympathetic to protection of work. That was one of the big things which did come out of party conference because before it started a lot of people said that committing the party to staying in Europe whatever happened would give David Cameron a blank check to try and renegotiate the social rights but that position seems to have evolved as well. Yeah well I think we took people through the argument on this and a couple of points. Uh, first of all saying that Europe is an important source of uh, social protection at work, be that in terms of rights to paid leave, equal rights for part-time workers, equal pay for agency workers, uh, protection when companies are taken over, anti-discrimination measures and so on. If Mr Cameron was to be uh, trying to make destruction of those rights part of the renegotiation package, first thing we said is we would oppose that because you can't build support for you know, staying in the European Union on the basis of a bonfire of employment rights at work. But if he was unwise enough to do that, the right response wouldn't be to then campaign to leave. Because by definition, if we leave the European Union, we don't have access to any European-wide uh, guaranteed employment rights. The right response would be to campaign to opt back into those rights in the future. And we've been through this before. Because when the social chapter was originally adopted in the European Union, the Conservative government uh, in the UK at the time, led by Prime Minister John Major, opted out of that social chapter. Um, but when Labour was elected in 97, one of our first acts was to opt straight back in. We couldn't have done that had we been outside the European Union. So I think we took people through the argument and the idea that you would campaign for a British exit on the basis of uh, Mr Cameron's package uh, was eventually seen as jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire. The other big question which people are traumatised by in the Labour Party is how to fight the referendum because one of the lessons which some sections of the Labour Party took from the Scottish referendum is that they turned themselves into a sitting target for the Scottish Nationalist Party by sharing a platform with the Conservatives as part of Better Together. Some people have argued that campaigning on the same platform as the business community and as the Conservatives on Europe could allow the UK Independence Party to uh, equally weaken Labour Party in its northern heartlands. Um, wh how, where do you think um, that debate is going to come out? Well, we've, uh, we're going to organise our own distinct uh, Labour in campaign led by my colleague Alan Johnson, who's one of the most uh, popular uh, politicians in the Labour Party. He's a great communicator and I'm really glad that Alan is doing that. Uh, my own view is that we can get a bit too hung up about this question of platform sharing. I think everyone will want to learn the lessons from uh, the Scottish experience, uh, both good and bad. Uh, it is quite clear to me that we will face a nationalist campaign which tries to portray itself as people versus elite. So I think it's really important that the campaign for remaining in uh, doesn't box itself into defending everything that European institutions do and doesn't even really begin 
with Europe itself, but begins with Britain and begins with a progressive patriotism about what the best future for the United Kingdom is uh, in terms of whether we are a rule maker with a seat at the top table or whether we end up being a rule taker in a somewhat illusory pursuit of sovereignty. So I think we've got to have a progressive uh, patriotic uh, beginning to the Labour in campaign and we must be very wary of being caught in this trap of people versus the elite that the out campaign uh, will want to construct. Can I ask you a final question which is about the refugee crisis and how you think that that's going to affect both the prospects for a referendum but also what the Labour pitches for, for Europe? I think the refugee crisis uh, is a tremendous leadership challenge for every country and in fact I think the broader question of migration poses big leadership challenges around the world at the moment. Um, there is one response which is to put up borders, uh, razor wire fences, border guards and all the rest of it, um, but I actually think the response to the refugee crisis should be more coordination across Europe and not less. Uh, I think probably Eurosceptics will feel uh, that the pictures on TV over the summer have uh, perhaps strengthened fears, um, but you know I think it's our job to show some leadership on this. And the truth is that greater movement of people around the world, uh, either for bad reasons such as fleeing war or for more benign ones uh, such as creating a new life, is a fact of modern life. Um, and I don't believe there's a rewind country. A rewind button rather to, to a country and a world that isn't coming back. That was Pat McFadden, who I interviewed at the Labour conference in Brighton. There, I also tracked down Kirsty McNeil, who is the head of campaigns for Save the Children, one of the most active charities campaigning on the refugee issue, but also a former staffer in Number 10 Downing Street. We've obviously had our general election in 2015, which everyone expected this May to be dominated by issues of immigration, by a UKIP surge, by really deep countrywide facility to immigration. But the thing that's been really interesting over the course of this year, and particularly this summer, is seeing issues of refugee rights and asylum become decoupled from the wider immigration debate across Westminster and across our media class. So the decoupling has enabled a space for actually quite a positive narrative around refugee and asylum rights to emerge, which has really been rooted at its best in both British history and British values. What hasn't really worked is an attempt to make this part of the wider European debate. There's obviously still really deep anxiety in Downing Street and elsewhere about the Prime Minister's renegotiation attempts for Britain's relationship with Europe. So the European angle hasn't changed much. The hostility to that remains pretty strong amongst the public. And also the public remains deeply sceptical about widespread immigration. So that, that issue hasn't moved particularly, but there has been this splintering of the asylum debate and the immigration debate in a way we haven't seen in the last decade. Corbyn seems to have put refugees front and centre of his own action. The first thing he did after he was elected party leader was to run down to a... Uh, a demonstration in favour of refugee rights. He was introduced by a refugee at the, the conference yesterday. How important do you think the Labour Party's uh, push, which started actually even before the end of the campaign when Yvette Cooper first talked about having uh, 10,000 
uh, Britain opening its doors to 10,000 Syrian refugees. How central do you think that's been to the change, this shift in the in the British debate? I think there's a couple of things that have been different at this time than perhaps we've seen in previous summers when there have been big spikes in the number of people coming to Europe. One has been the churches and that sort of middle Britain audience has got involved in this debate in a way that it hasn't traditionally. So we saw earlier this summer Songs of Praise, which is an incredibly gentle BBC programme being filmed from the jungle at Calais. We've seen the Archbishop of Canterbury be incredibly outspoken, the former chief rabbi likewise. So the Labour Party has been part of a much wider debate and actually this debate has been at its most productive when it's been at its least political. So when we've had Avaz and 38 Degrees and Citizens UK... These are all, all campaign, internet cam and other campaigning organisations that, that run petitions. Yeah, joining up with the independent newspaper and with Amnesty and with organisations like Save the Children. There's been a really wide coalition that together we've calculated there have been 1.4 million actions taken to support refugees and the march that you were just discussing that Jeremy Corbyn went to address had 10,000 people at it and that was really middle Britain on the move. It was a march full of bicycles and buggies. It wasn't a particularly political audience and that depoliticisation has meant that we've been able to come together around the idea that this is this is the decent thing to do rather than a particularly left or right wing thing to do. There's been a lot of discussion obviously also about the fact that earlier this year we lost Sir Nicholas Winton who was the British hero who rescued about 669 uh, Czech Jewish children uh, with the kinder transport and then the kinder transport Britain took 10,000 uh, lone children into Britain for safety. So there is a British tradition that this campaign is playing into and when it's about British pride and British history we've seen people who have been able to come together across party lines. So why do you think that this quest for decency has been a unilateral one rather than something which c can be linked with what other European countries are doing? So Britain obviously has a particular political relationship with our membership of the European Union and the timing of this is obviously incredibly difficult that we have an upcoming European referendum in which the Prime Minister has staked his name on an effective renegotiation and because of the toxic debate we have about immigration, renegotiation around immigration uh, control from the British perspective has been part of his sort of test of uh, his strength in those negotiations. So for this particular period it's incredibly difficult for European advocates and for migration advocates to say that Britain should use an opt-in when currently we have an opt-out. So Britain's one of the countries that has an opt-out on home affairs for advocates to suggest that there should be a spontaneous unilateral opting in by Britain is not particularly cognizant of where the debate is at the moment. What do you think has been the political reaction to Angela Merkel's um, sort of hugely game-changing moves on, on the refugees, talking about taking 800,000 people, has that led to a sense that Britain should do more? Is that one of the things that has changed the debate here? Well, the thing is that there's a spread of things that each European country needs to do, and the Germans obviously have been fantastic at offering resettlement. The UK figure for resettlement is much lower. The Prime Minister has offered 20,000 uh, for resettlement direct from the region. But what the UK government would say in their defence is whilst their number on that particular policy is low, 
their aid giving is world beating. So we are the second biggest donor to the region. So over a billion pounds have been given to Syria and her surrounding neighbours to deal with the refugee crisis there. So the UK government would say that their role is in the region at the start of the problem, whereas other European countries may deal with more of the issue once people get to Europe. But the UK government would say you have to look at it across the board what our contribution has been. So they would defend themselves on their aid contribution, but they'd also defend themselves on their contribution to the search and rescue operations in the Med, where the Royal Navy is the biggest giver of assets to that operation. So the UK government would say you can't judge us on one issue alone and you can't judge the Germans on one issue alone. You have to judge European countries on their comprehensive response. It's exactly on that issue of the comprehensive response and what we do in the region that the Labour Party has been quite divided as well this week. There is a uh, kind of ongoing discussion about Syria and whether um, uh, Britain should be more involved, uh, not just in a humanitarian way, but also particularly in the fight against ISIS. What is the politics around that and how is that linked with this wider discussion of, of the refugees? So there does seem to be a suggestion from the Labour Party leadership that there would be a free vote on that for Labour Party MPs and I think part of what's driving that is this new generation, so the 2015 generation that came in this May, does seem to be more exercised by the humanitarian considerations around Syria than perhaps their predecessors were the last time the Labour Party was called upon to vote on this question. And that's partly been driven by the fact that things have got much worse. So we've now seen four million Syrians displaced around the region, quite apart from all those who've been displaced from their homes inside the country by a combination of forces, not just what's happening with ISIS, but what the Assad regime continues to do. So this situation now is very different from the time when Labour parties were called upon to talk about this before, but there is clearly a strong internationalist bent in the 2015 intake, which Jeremy Corbyn uh, likewise comes from an internationalist tradition, but they are pointing in very different directions and the party management issues around that are clearly weighing heavily on the leadership at the moment when they've suggested that actually this could be a conscience question and that firmly held, quite heated views on both sides are ones that come from a position of like really deep knowledge, that these aren't ideological positions or fanciful ones on both sides. People really feel that they know the issues and have thought about them deeply, so the leadership's perhaps more open to this being a policy-led conscience vote, whereas it was clearly the last time Syria was voted about it was highly politicised and highly partisan. So you could have a paradox that whereas the Labour Party opposed military action in Syria under Ed Miliband, who was uh, more mainstream in a lot of his views on foreign policy, that, that the Labour Party this time could actually end up supporting it, or at least enough to, to allow this to go through the House of Commons, even though Jeremy Corbyn himself um, has, was very much on the other side of the uh, argument, both then and, and, and more recently. Well, so one of the things that's going on with the parliamentary arithmetic is the Prime Minister in this second term of his where he has a majority is the Prime Minister has turned his attention more forcefully to foreign policy than I think he did in the first term. So we've seen more engagement from the Foreign Office, we've seen more engagement from Number 10 in foreign policy across the board. So the parliamentary arithmetic won't just be made up of what happens in the Labour Party but what happens in other parties too. Last but not least, I talked to Luke Akehurst, who is the Secretary of Labour First, a relatively unknown grouping within the Labour Party, but one which had an enormous amount of influence in the internal struggles of the 1980s, and one which is still very potent in the big battles, particularly on defence within the party today. 
Since 1969, a British submarine has always been on patrol, carrying up to 16 Trident nuclear missiles to give Britain its second strike capability. The Conservative government says that replacing Trident in its current form is the best way of maintaining a British nuclear deterrent. The Labour Party has traditionally been in favour of that as well. But Jeremy Corbyn has a long history of opposing nuclear weapons in general and Trident in particular. I asked Luke Akers what he thinks about the future of Labour's defence policy. Well, I'm surprised. It, uh, I was watching it on a screen and I thought it was rather muted applause. And I'd be surprised if, if, it, if it was one of the biggest applause lines because that doesn't reflect the interesting test of opinion on this uh, that conference had on Sunday. There's a thing called the priority ballot which decides which issues conference wants to debate and the left of the party were urging, publicly urging delegates to um, have a debate on scrapping uh, Britain's strategic nuclear deterrent and that was rejected uh, as a topic for debate both by the unions overwhelmingly, it only got 0.16% of the vote in the union section because uh, the GMB and Unite represent thousands and thousands of workers on the Trident programme in Derby. Those are two big British trade unions. Two, the, two, two of the three biggest. Um, they represent thousands and thousands of, uh, of workers at the Fast Lane base, at uh, the Barrow shipyard and at Rolls-Royce in Derby which are all uh, integral parts of the programme and it was also um, rejected by the constituency activists so half of the vote half the vote on uh, the conference is held by the unions half is held by local Labour Party activists and the local Labour Party activists decided they didn't want to debate it either um, it got only got seven percent of the vote amongst them um, and I think that reflected two things I think it reflected um, a belief that uh, this is a divisive issue at a time the party's just had a very contentious leadership election. We want to unite around domestic policy things where we can agree, not to replay a fight uh, that has gone on um, since the 1950s. The Labour Party's been debating this, so this is not a new or contemporary issue. Um, and I think it also reflected the fact that whilst uh, there is I would say quite a consensus in the party uh, about going off in a more radical anti-austerity uh, direction. I don't think that that consensus exists on the foreign policy side around Corbyn's belief. I don't think that his uh, slightly Eurosceptic tone even reflects the view of the, of the left of the party, let alone its right. Um, I don't think his scepticism about NATO uh, reflects uh, party opinion. And whilst Trident would be a more, uh, more closely fought issue, I actually think he had a lucky escape. If, he had, if it had got through this priority ballot system and there'd been a full debate on it, uh, it's my view he could have narrowly lost. How much do you think that the Trident issue is emblematic of, of other differences, particularly around the questions of defence? I mean, NATO membership is one thing that came up very strongly during the, the campaign. There's going to be a vote on Syria and whether to intervene in that. Diane Abbott, the Shadow Defence Secretary, used her speech yesterday to, to declare her opposition to that, but that's obviously something which opinions divided on in the party. Yeah, I, th I think it's kind of totemic of a kind of... It, it, it's, it's basically about do you see America as uh, fundamentally, even though it might get policy things wrong, America as fundamentally a, a poll for um, 
for good, for freedom and democracy in the world, or do you see America as a force for bad that we should distance ourselves from? That's what, that's what this is about. It's what all the stuff about interventionism is about. It's about whether you have a Western orientated, uh, NATO orientated foreign policy, which you know, ironically was the foreign policy created by the Atlee and Bevin government. Uh, in the 40s, or are you, you, you going for some sort of more non-aligned stance? I also think there's a bit of internal party politics here. I think if I looked at it really cynically, I think there are some of the people pushing this so hard, they're doing it because it's emotive for people on the moderate wing of the party, and perhaps in terms of the internal maths, I don't think they want MPs to defect or anything, that wouldn't help anyone, but it, it, it probably wouldn't upset them too much if this was just pushed so hard that it made made it untenable for some people in the moderate wing of the party to stay in because that's to the internal electoral advantage uh, of the of the left activists that are pushing this so I'm sorry if that sounds cynical <laughs> but I think, I, I think there's some real politics going on here so if you were talking to people outside of the UK who haven't been to party Labour Party conference as often as you and I have and have, haven't been looking at this what do you think um, what's happened over the last few days should tell them about what a Labour Party policy, foreign and domestic policy would be like and uh, what that might mean for Britain's outlook more generally? I think um, they need to understand that the Labour Party has a, 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 it's a big federal organisation and it has a wide range of centres of power and decision making uh, designed to reflect its federal nature, designed to reflect the geography uh, of the UK and the ge geography of where Labour's support is. And just because one guy with a particular position, one leader, yeah, that's massively important, but it doesn't detract from the fact that there are a range of other views in the Parliamentary Party, in the Shadow Cabinet, on the National Policy Forum, uh, the National Executive, um, and, at the, and, at, and at the conference. And there will be a creative tension between those elements as we get nearer to the general election and uh, in 2020, and we have to actually come to some final decisions on on policy and what goes um, into the manifesto. Um, but I, w I would say, you know, we're at such a fast-moving time in Labour Party and British politics, uh, such a totally unexpected and unprecedented time that people have to watch and see how things develop and I just think it's quite heartening for people inside the party like me who do uh, support NATO and support nuclear deterrence that the very first test that we've had when our morale should have been at, at its lowest and our, um, you know, the, the left of the party would have ought to have been sweeping all before them uh, that we were able um, to draw a red line and, and, and win on this and stop there being uh, a debate on it. It gives me great confidence that if we're well organised uh, we can continue to ensure that Labour remains a party that's properly committed to Britain's national security. This brings a, this special edition of The World in 30 Minutes to an end. I spent a few very interesting days here in Brighton at the Labour conference and we will certainly continue to cover all these questions in the months and years ahead. So watch this space at www.ecfr.eu and write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu to tell us what you thought of this new format and to give us more feedback on the podcast in general. But for now, from Kirsty McNeil, Pat McFadden, Luke Akerst and myself, Mark Leonard, it's thank you and goodbye.
The researcher for our podcast is Ulrike Franke and our editor is Katarina Botel-Atzinaro. Thank you.